Hello and welcome to the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and MuniNetworks.org. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. It's hard to believe it, but this is our 25th episode. This week we have a return visit from a guest, Dwayne Hendricks, entrepreneur and CEO of Tetherless Access. The last time Dwayne visited with Christopher, the two discussed how possibilities for wireless technologies have been stifled due to DC lobbying. This time, Chris and Dwayne discuss the interplay between fiber and wireless, and how both are essential in today's technology landscape. Dwayne shares his needs as a businessman and explains why today's approach holds back entrepreneurs like him. Now to Chris and Dwayne. Dwayne Hendricks, CEO of Tetherless Access. We're very excited to have you on for our first repeat guest uh, performance. You were on a, a few months ago, and um, so thank you for coming back on the show. Oh, you're welcome, Chris. Uh, I'm glad to be back, and I'm also glad to be honored to be the first uh, repeat guest. We have an opportunity here to continue our discussion, and um, I do so a little bit better informed. You you'd recommended reading The Myth of Interference by David Weinberger, which I hadn't read before, and I... I commend, command our listeners to Google it and find it because it is a, a very good paper. Um, but in, in short, it fills in some gaps and, and reinforces what we talked about last time, which was how we can better use spectrum. And so I don't think we're going to revisit that today, but we will be uh, talking more about um, how we can use wireless effectively and, and, and where wired networks are, are perhaps better and how they interrelate. To me, I've always thought about... Uh how to make the best use of both. So I look at it basically how you would use fiber and wireless together in sort of a hybrid fashion. Let's perhaps start with a short explanation for people who uh, aren't very familiar with how modern networks operate. I think uh, some people believe that cell phones use satellites and that a cell phone connection is wireless the whole way, whatever whatever that might mean. So maybe you can walk us through um, how wireless and wired connections like fiber or copper inter- interrelate right now. So basically your cell phone talks to a base station. That base station could be tied to a network upstream either two ways. It could be wirelessly, which is not usually the predominant way to do that except in say rural areas. But let's say in an urban area, it would be your base station would be connected to uh, its upstream network via some kind of wire. So usually it's wire and not fiber, but it can be one of the one or the other. Right. The issues are who owns this infrastructure, and uh, in the United States, pretty much the existing telco cartel owns the wired and wireless infrastructure. Right. So that would be your AT and T, your Verizon, for the most part. Right. Comcast. Comcast is the biggest internet service provider in the United States. Right. And think about that. They have all those end users out there more than anybody else. It's a monopoly it's to a large extent. You and I both live in cities in which we have a choice between slow DSL or a faster Comcast network. And so for people who care about fast connections, indeed, I think it's correct to call it a monopoly. So uh, I'm a Comcast business class user here at my home. So I have a number of machines on my network here, and I have uh, static IP addresses, which I pay for. So I'm essentially paying Comcast about $120 a month to get 22 down and uh, two up. So that's a lot more than a regular Comcast user does, but basically the business division of Comcast, it's a different division. So they treat it like a business. And so if I have a problem, 
they they send a truck out right away as opposed to a regular Comcast customer. And, you know, you wait several days for somebody to show up. Mm -hmm. So that's the difference. So it does give you some idea about your infrastructure choices. Yes. Which is important here. So as an entrepreneur, I want to do wireless, do a wireless business. Okay. And to do that, I can deploy a wireless network. I mean, I've got great equipment to do that, like from Ubiquity and other vendors. I'm sensing that there's something holding you back from that. Because I need an upstream infrastructure and I can't go and get that and buy that from anybody. If I want to do a business, I have to essentially build all of that infrastructure. So if I want to be able to match the speeds that I'll be able to deliver to my end users with the wireless equipment that'll be available, I've got to have a lot of upstream bandwidth, which calls for fiber rather than a wired connection or a coax connection. Right. And actually, I do think there's an interesting lesson which uh, Benoit Felton um, has made uh, in talking about Stockholm, which has this very large citywide fiber network. And that's that they have four uh, 4G LTE competitors, which is unique in the world. It's the amount of fiber and high capacity infrastructure that allows so much wireless to exist. Well, I just came back from uh, a business trip to, to Amsterdam. And like Stockholm, they have an, a, an open fiber infrastructure that's citywide so that they allow multiple players to use the fiber infrastructure. So there's all kinds of competition and all kinds of internet service providers that you can go to to get service in Amsterdam. The lack of a robust um, network opportunity, um, the robust network connections for entrepreneurs such as yourself is what is holding us back in the U.S. from having not just better wired networks, but also better wireless networks. Exactly. Exactly. I couldn't raise enough money to, to build the infrastructure I need just for even one city. The existing players have favored nation status. The, the telcos, because they've essentially been subsidized by us, the taxpayers, for a long time, and then the cable companies, they have these unique franchises where they essentially are monopolies in the city. So they've all had preferences to get to where they are and build their infrastructure. Right. Although I, I would like to just clarify, and, and you can correct me if, if you've had a different experience, but um, in most cities, um, certainly over the last 20 years and, and even before that, uh, the, mo the, the video franchise was not an exclusive one. Uh, it just ended up being that way because no one really wanted to build another cable network on top of an existing one. Oh, that's true. Yeah. A lot of people want to blame uh, local governments for the lack of competition, and I think that's inappropriate. I agree. However, the agreements did turn to that. I, I watched what happened in the Bay Area where there were multiple providers and then uh, Comcast came in and kicked every, you know, everybody else was gone. They bought them up. Mm -hmm. My intention was to talk about fiber versus wireless, but we, we immediately came to this conclusion that um, they're so interrelated that it, I, I, I sometimes say that it's, it's like arguing uh, what you'd rather have, a shoe or a hat. <laughs> it ignores that they, they, they perform different functions. But you need them both to build a modern high-speed broadband network. Right. And this is where I've, I've long been interested. I think you've been very passionate about um, the need for wireless. 
And, and I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about why you think it is, it is important to have that wireless rather than just stopping with a fiber connection in everyone's home. Because you're not home all the time. We're a mobile culture worldwide now. We're, we're out on the hoof. And we want to have our internet wherever we go. And there really shouldn't be a difference between the amount of bits you can sip when you're sitting in your house as opposed to when you're mobile. Absolutely. It makes sense to me. I mean, I, I would love to have that sort of arrangement. I, what's stopping us from having that? Well, it's that infrastructure thing again. And that, you know, think about it. Uh, early on, there we used to, uh, app developers had to say, well, if we're going to do an app over the Celco net, the cellular network, is slower, so we got to design the app to deal with this, this, and this. And so you had infrastructure kind of dependent apps. That's crazy. We infrastructure builders shouldn't make it difficult for app developers. The application is the king. That's what makes money. So we should put barriers in the way for that. And so that means that we may need to make the wireless and, and wired infrastructures be, have as much parity as possible in terms of performance. So that's my goal as an entrepreneur. When you start supporting multiple users, you need a lot of uh, upstream bandwidth to really do those kinds of access technologies justice which means you got to have fiber. But given the way things are set up from a business standpoint in the United States, there's just no way And that what we really need in municipalities is open fiber infrastructure that can support multiple player. What sort of fiber infrastructure are you, how, how deep does it have to go? It doesn't have to go to every home. You know, from my standpoint, I need it to go to, let's say, uh, neighborhood peering points, because I would have the wireless technology to get to a peering point. Mm -hmm. If you look at the FCC's national broadband plan, broadband, that word broadband is mentioned throughout the whole plan, but not the internet, not the internet. And from my view of, of looking at things as an entrepreneur, I want to see lots of internets, because what an internet means to me is a competitive opportunity and that it's a bunch of independently owned and operated networks. Right. So you're you're contrasting the idea of a sort of ecosystem of lots of different networks versus just a, a comparatively high speed connection that may be offered to everybody by a single provider that makes all kinds of decisions about what applications can run and that sort of thing. Exactly. Like, for instance, Comcast, again, being the biggest ISP in the United States, there was two classes of users. There are business users. And they're regular users. They're business users. They treat like a, a business in that I can have as many machines on my network as possible. I can redistribute the service downstream however I want. I don't have any caps. You know, you get the idea, like the regular residential user. Right. So they're making business decisions, and basically I pay more for that privilege. There's nothing wrong with that. But then, for instance, I want to do IPv6 now today and i just got off the phone with comcast this morning saying hey what do i need to do to when are you going to support v6 and they're saying well maybe sometime in mid 2013 i can't go to anybody else where i am right now that can give me v6 um there are some cities that that have something that i would think would be close perhaps not throughout the entire city but for instance you could lease uh, dark fiber from palo alto and I'm curious if, if that would be an opportunity or what the barrier is there. No, I could in Palo Alto, 
yeah, that's poss- that's a possibility. And that would allow me to do for Palo Alto the kind of network I'm talking about. But that wouldn't get me very far in other places in the Bay Area. So there are some cities where it may be possible. Um, I was curious if there was something that local governments were missing in terms of making sure that they would be open to the kind of network that you want to provide. Well, I don't think they're really aware because that's why I brought up the FCC's broadband plan. you got to react to a vision. And to me, the vision that was presented in the broadband plan was not an Internet vision. It was about, it was a carrier vision. It was like, we're going to provide these pipes and these people will provide these pipes. That's the way the world should. So it, it imposed a structure on our thinking here in the United States about how networking should be done. In, in, in fact, it seems that perhaps all the analogies we use with electrification are um, perhaps too much of a straitjacket in terms of how we think about the internet. Yes, because the way I learned the internet was a bunch of independently owned and operated networks. And we use this common language called TCPIP to talk to each other in that we each run our own autonomous networks. And then we have these gateway routers and we use the gateway routers to go to other autonomous networks. And we have peering rules that say, hey, I'll, I'll route all your packets to my network and you route all the packet, my packets to your network and I won't charge you for that and you won't charge me for that. Right. So if we had that kind of thinking and vision, then if I had a citywide fiber network that was open that I could use, then I could make decisions about how I would structure my wireless access network and then how I would use that resource, that fiber resource, to provide my, my, uh, my backhaul. Right. That's what I would like to see, and that's what I had hoped our government would get the message. But again, they're not thinking internets. They're thinking carriers, somebody like would own all the fiber infrastructure in a city, but they don't have to share it. They made the investment, and then they decide how that resource gets used, and it's their way or the highway. I understand why they came to that approach based on who wrote the plan and who advised on it and that sort of thing. This is their mentality. And what I had hoped from the government is we got a more expansive, we invented the internet, but we sort of, our governments walked away from it. They were dragged away from it by industry lobbyists. (laughs) Yeah. If people like me had a chance, we say, look, give us some infrastructure that's open, okay, that we can share and I'll pay my share of it, okay, or for the use of it, but we need peering points. You know, we need cooperative co-op peering points. That's how the internet is structured to be built. I'm curious, what, how many peering points do you need in a, in a city? And I'm, I'm trying to think of a, maybe Detroit or maybe a, you know, a Minneapolis or a St. Paul, not the largest cities in the country, but modest-sized cities. Um, what, what are we talking about? Well, peering points and how they get set up should be determined by the local constituency because you never know how many people are going to set up an internet in an area. Because with wireless, you see, you've got this ad hoc capability to throw up a network. You know, you could throw up a network in your neighborhood and start offering services. That would be your own autonomous internet. Then you would want to have a gateway to other autonomous networks. And that gateway would be at a peering center. You don't have to have just one in a city. You could have multiple ones just based on like-minded people getting together and decide that they want to route each other's traffic. 
and then they work out a way to share some upstream connection and share the cost of that. So it all becomes ad hoc, which is the way business should be. Right. I want to I want to plug a book that I read that I think would be very helpful for people who are maybe drawing a blank and a little bit confused as to how the internet works in this model that you're developing. Uh, it was written for that sort of person. Uh, it's called Tubes by uh, I believe it's Andrew Bloom, and it came out earlier this year. Um, it was reviewed on Fresh Air and a number of other places. Chris, the way I see getting as an entrepreneur getting around this problem we face here in the United States is that we've got a top-down infrastructure now in this country. We have the tools. The technology gives us a way now to build cost-effective ad hoc networks at the edge. If you remember Evan Moglin's talk at uh, Freedom to Connect this year, uh, his talk was called Innovation Under Austerity. Yes. Evan's sort of backing something called the Free Network Foundation. And what the Free Networking Foundation is about is getting this vision across to people. It's a nonprofit corporation and of people building their own autonomous uh, internets. And they're providing the tools in terms of routers, gateway routers and stuff that people need to do that. And they sort of have a model of, you know, how people would be able to have neighborhood gateways and how all that would work, you know, then that people would have their own personal networks and that would aggregate up to community networks and so on and so on and so on. But the idea is to have customer owned and operated infrastructure. Now, that may be a fantasy in and of itself, but it gets back us back to the idea of the internets that w was there originally about, you know, it's like there shouldn't be just one. Absolutely. I think one of the ways that I tend to think about it is that at the very least, we have to have that option. That option cannot be taken away from us in policy uh, or law. Exactly. Exactly. Well, right now it is. And I don't see any way, easy way to get us out of this. Okay, except for is usually what happens, a small minority takes the plunge and takes the heat. You know, the pioneers get the arrows and the settlers get the land. What seems like we need, and, and my question about Palo Alto and your response suggests that it's not just enough for one or two um, pilot communities, but uh, you would need something that can more catch the attention of others, um, a larger area or a contiguous area. Is that... Is that f fair? That's fair. And now is the time for me to comment about the Google Fiber experiment in Kansas City. Okay. Because I think that they made a big mistake from my perspective now, not theirs. I mean, they're essentially following the, the classic model. like a, They're becoming like a Comcast in that city. Yes. And instead of laying a fiber infrastructure that's open to all to allow multiple providers to transit that infrastructure. If whether it's Google or whether it's another city, um, as there, it, this is a new idea and whatnot, do you think you would generate enough revenue to compensate another actor, local government or business, building these connections throughout cities? Well, is it the wrong question? <laughs> no, it's the right question in that, like I said, I just came from Amsterdam earlier in the month where it works there. And it works in, in, in Stockholm, and it works in a lot of other places overseas. It just works. They, they're, they've got a robust competition over there. And the prices are different, but we don't have it here. And, again, I don't see any clear route 
for us to get it here, except by peaceful civil disobedience, in a way, okay? I mean, somebody's got to build this stuff, but you, again, doing a, another pilot or a, a, like doing it in Palo Alto is great for Palo Alto, but it's like, I hear about Chattanooga and I hear about Lafayette and stuff, and it's like, these places might as well be, again, Shangri-La, you know, someplace that's off in the distance somewhere where unicorns play every day. I'm tremendous, obviously a tremendous fan of what they've done in those municipal networks. But, um, you know, those networks are a different version of the cable model. Um, you know, they're, they're closer to the cable model in that, um, they envision themselves owning the network and providing services. Uh, it's, it, Chattanooga is one network, right? And so even though it's far more responsive to the community and, and business needs than, than is a large national carrier, in some ways, I don't think Chattanooga gets us closer to your vision either. No, it doesn't. But my vision is not just my vision. It's like the Free Networks Foundation's vision. There are you know, a growing group of network people, geeks, whatever you want to call it, that have this shared vision. Our task now is to get it to become more than just our vision, to get it up to the national level and, and get people to say, hey, this is what we want. Yes, I'm just imagining how we can move in that direction. Look at the Free Network Foundation site, and, and they have an articulation of what their vision is. And if you like what they're talking about and you sort of want it yourself, tell other people about it. Word of mouth, that's the way it works. So you take people and you turn them into revolutionaries, one step at a time. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's all about building relationships. That's, that's how we make big change. Yes. And this is, I think, it's been incredibly enlightening for my thinking in terms of trying to understand what is possible with the future of wireless. Uh, because to the extent that I've been dismissive of wireless in the past, it's often been predicated on the idea of wireless as we've known it, LTE, big carriers, that sort of thing. Um, and this is a vision of where wireless is heading and what the technology will allow us to do if we allow it. Yes. I mean, we're moving towards Wi-Fi everywhere. But that, for that to really work, we've got to have backhaul everywhere, too. Can't have one without the other. Well, thank you so much for for coming on again. Um, I'm I'm sure it won't be uh, very long. It'll probably be sometime in 2013, though, when we find an excuse to to talk again. All right, Chris. Happy holidays. You too. Uh, thank you so much. That was Christopher and Dwayne Hendricks of Tetherless Access. If you are interested in learning more about the community-owned and operated networks vision that Dwayne described, visit the Free Network Foundation at thefnf.org. And if you missed our first discussion with Duane, we encourage you to listen at muninetworks.org. Our talk with Duane was episode 18. If you have any questions or comments, email us directly at podcast at muninetworks.org. Our handle on Twitter is at communitynets. This show was released on December 11th, 2012. Thanks to the Mojo Monkeys for the music licensed using Creative Commons. The song is called Bodacious. Bodacious.